This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. We hear about the strange world of football in East Germany. And even if you're not interested in football, it is a fascinating chat. Craig McCracken runs the website beyondthelastman.com, described as 20th century football writing and nostalgia in a skilled and cultured groove. One of his areas of interest is football in the GDR. And from our conversation, you'll realize he is a font of knowledge from BSG Rotation Babelsberg to FC Hansa Rostock and all stops between. We talk about the nefarious activities of Stasi chief Eric Milka and his favorite team. And we also cover the only competitive game where the GDR played West Germany in the 1974 World Cup. Craig also describes a Stasi chase through the bazaars of Istanbul to stop player defections and the suspicious death of a former GDR player in West Germany. If you want to know more, there's some great videos and other links on our show notes page at coldwarconversations.com slash episode and the number three. I'm delighted to welcome Craig McCracken. So, hi, Craig. How are you? Hi, Ian. Yeah, very good. Thank you. And yourself? Good. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your website, Beyond the Last Man? Well, certainly, yes. Uh, I mean, Beyond the Last Man is essentially, it's a ritual uh, football writing and nostalgia sites that I started back in, in 2012. Um, and it has a focus predominantly in, on, on world football. But uh, world football with a timeline more based around the second half of the 20th century. So really from the start of the post-war era through to maybe the beginning of the 1990s, really. We sometimes venture outside that time window, but uh, the majority of the articles that, that I, I write about and, and um, my contributors write about tend to be within that 40-45 uh, year window, really. So I like to write about players and teams and subjects that will be probably a little bit less known to modern football fans. That's the East German connection, obviously, there. Okay. Well, I highly recommend to listeners to uh, have have a look at Craig's site. Now, Obviously, you're, you're here to talk about the uh, football in the former East Germany. Now, what, what started mm. your interest around that? Well, it started back when I was a teenager and uh, I first started going to football games. And um, I think when you grow up with football in Glasgow, you're very, very fortunate because you have Rangers and you have Celtic and both of them play or used to play at least uh, European club football every season. And I always loved European club football and I was always very, very happy to go along to, to both grounds to, on big European nights to see uh, to see the, the, the various visitors come to Ibex and, and Parkhead. And so 
from quite an early age, I suppose, I developed a, a real interest, a fascination when Eastern European clubs generally came because there was a uh, there was an aura about them, a, a kind of mystique, a, a sort of sullen sullenness, uh, a kind of uh, <laughs> of, of, of a different, diff, different political system. Uh, none of them seemed to smile, and um, they all seemed to have a disdain for, uh, for us, us mere Westerners. So I was always kind of interested. I was always kind of intrigued, and um, and as I as I grew older, I started to look a little bit more into the the histories of these clubs and and the stories behind them, and, and found out how fascinating they were the politics and the machinations that, that went on and just how much football in the Eastern Bloc was, was manipulated for political purposes, of course. Oh. And bringing this, bringing this around to East Germany, of course, well, well, no other country's football probably operated within such uh, narrowly defined parameters as was the case with, with East Germany. I think another aspect of, of as well, my, my interest in East Germany, I think it's an element of nostalgia as well, of course, because um, I think we tend to romanticise and venerate what's gone and East Germany has gone, although its clubs remain in some form or another. The East German football and the East German Oberliga system obviously disappeared in 1991. And um, so I, th- I think I probably look back through slightly rose tinted glasses now in the way that um, I wouldn't necessarily do with football in <laughs> Bulgaria or Albania, which <laughs> carries, on, carries on to this day, albeit in, in a slightly different form. So, Craig, how, how was East German football organised then? What, what are sort of like the, the, the differences that we, we would have seen versus, you know, how Western uh, clubs were organised? Well, the short answer is messily, and the long answer is is much more convoluted, convoluted than that. Well, let's really. let's have a bit of the long answer, right? I'm intrigued. A now. bit of them. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think one of the fundamental differences um, between football in, in East Germany and most of the rest of, of of Europe, certainly Western Europe as well, was how the sport was viewed by the state. Um, in, in Western Europe and much of Eastern Europe as well, it was always viewed as a force for good. And um, I think there was there was always a trepidation by these German states of the, the SED, really SED party, to, to ever really embrace football because there was worry about its popular appeal. And the, of course, there was always an uneasiness about mass gatherings in one space and, and thousands of people coming together in football grounds gave scope for potentially dissenting voices to, to to be raised as well. And then I think quite significantly was football being a team sport and um, being subject to the, the vagaries of individuals and, and luck and, and, and for the reasons that we, we love the sport. I think that was a problem because it became a it was a very difficult sport for the state to weaponize for propaganda purposes. So that... So there, there wasn't. Did they use doping, like to the level they were using in athletics? Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, within within athletics and swimming, um, there was a, a strong, obviously, a powerful state fund, state funded, state driven uh, program, and it was very pragmatic. It was very scientific. The Olympics were seen as the most valuable sporting outlet, and um, in terms of being able to. Uh, I think very much is in, in the way that the, the British team has done successfully in recent years, targeting sports in which they felt they could win considerable amounts of medals and concentrating the doping campaigns in those. And, and I emphasise, obviously, Britain has 
has done that through its funding and picking sports like uh, shooting and uh, the, the equestrian events that um, that they they could focus on and 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 get some success. And so, I think the Olympics was always top of the tree for these German states because it could be. Um, and there was a lot less focus on football because they realised it was much more difficult for them to uh, to succeed. So. Doping was uh, insignificant, I think, within the East German state because there was no real need to, basically, <laughs> because it wasn't really felt that it could bring great success uh, because of um, strategy and tactics and technique. Doping can't really improve that. And you mentioned, you know, the worry about dissent at the uh, the uh, the football stadia. It, mm. Have you seen, you know, found any evidence of sort of, you know, it? Of, of clubs or or of uh, the crowds at clubs using a football ground to be able to voice dissent sort of anonymously? I think that started to occur much more uh, commonly during the 1980s. And I think that that came with dissatisfaction with the regime growing, of course. And within the footballing context as well, dissatisfaction with uh, uh, BFC Dynamo's dominance, which was... Uh, obviously corrupt, obviously referee referee influenced as well. So I think um, before uh, Milka and um, the Anastasi really took gr- uh, a grip of these German game and, and um, basically made the uh, the Oberliga title the exclusive domain of, of their favourite club. East German football was was I hesitate to, to say it was open, but um, the honours were shared around um, and. Football was, you know, was seen as, as a force for good by supporters. But um, I think by the 1980s, as um, BFC Dynamo recorded uh, corrupt title win after corrupt title win, I think it mirrored the very decline of the state itself. Yeah. And um, so there was um, a lot of dissatisfaction, okay. particularly um, amongst um, supporters in, in Leipzig and Dresden. I, I feel that the, the kind of big city clubs who had enjoyed some success in the past. Uh, as they they saw that there was very little point in, in them being there because they yeah. knew that their clubs couldn't win. Yeah. And so were there there were different types of club then? There there were a number of different sort of categories of club, were there? There were there was yes. I mean there were very few. Nobody could just set up a club um, as a free club. Um, every club had to be associated with some organ of the state. Virtually virtually all all teams that there were. The occasional exception, like Saxon, Saxon Ring Vicar, were, were an unusual exception. But um, virtually every club were associated with an industry uh, or some sort of uh, government ministry. And I think part of the joy of of, of, of the, the naming conventions of these German clubs is you could see a club's origins from its prefix that it carried. So obviously everybody recognizes Dinamo as, as being the, the club of the um, interior uh, clubs of the interior ministry. So you had Dinamo Berlin, obviously, and, and Dinamo Dresden and, and many other smaller Dinamo clubs as well. For Verts was, they were army clubs, the activist clubs were mining, were related to mining. Uh, clubs prefix of tractor were involved in the agricultural uh, sector. Uh, rotation was one of the more interesting ones, which uh, they were clubs that uh, were affiliated to to the print industry. Okay, and and I, you know, obviously one of the teams I've heard of is Locomotive Leipzig. Was that mm. anything to do with trains? It was. It was indeed. Yes, and they, they were part of the railway sector. Um, 
and it, it kind of mirrors the, the the nomenclature that was uh, coming across much of the Eastern Bloc because there were uh, locomotive uh, clubs. There was locomotive Moscow that that are still exist today and are still mm-hmm. a force. Locomotive Sofia in in Bulgaria. Uh, so there was about half a dozen significant uh, clubs, and they even used to run a railways cup um, where the the railway clubs of Eastern Europe would get together and uh, and play off uh, in a one of these <laughs> manufactured um, competitions. I, I think that that used to run in the 1970s. Um, I couldn't tell you who won whoever <laughs> won them off the top of my head, to be honest. Oh, it's a shame. I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that uh, yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. The way that 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 the uh, the clubs were set up. I think I read somewhere also that a number of clubs actually moved locations as well. Well, well, absolutely. Um, I mean, we'll probably talk a little bit about uh, Forverts Berlin, who who are, were probably my favourite in retrospect, my my favourite uh, East German club. And I mean, they were they were the army club, and they were the dominant club. They were the, the BFC Dynamo of the nineteen fifties and sixties, where as they were repeated champions, and they they had um, again quite an interesting, um, but a very very typical. Uh, typical history. Berlin football in Berlin in the early 1950s was underrepresented and, and poorly represented. So the shortcut that was taken uh, was to basically just import a successful team from elsewhere in the country. So uh, so Vorwitz were uh, came in from uh, from Leipzig or from Dresden, um, from one of the two. Anyway, their, their team was uh, imported lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, and renamed and made to be Forfeiters Berlin. And they then played with some success, as I say, in the 50s and, and the 60s. And um, they probably, the peak of the powers was roughly 1969, 1970, when they reached the quarterfinals of the European Cup. And then in 1971, typical East German fashion, the decision was made that um, the small smallest town of Frankfurt order on the Polish border needed a, a football club because their previous team had been disbanded so for uh, Berlin were shifted they were moved out and renamed as Forverts Frankfurt order <laughs> and uh, they ceased so, to be any any sort of significant force after that so it's a bit like you know being a Rangers fan let's say and mm. then suddenly your club is moved to Birmingham well, if if I could give um, maybe a slightly slightly better example, it would have been, say, for example, well, my, uh, when Rangers uh, went bankrupt in 2012 and had to mm. start again uh, down in the fourth tier of the Scottish game, and um, so they started with with a new team, they they bought in a new team, but it would have been like if Rangers had decided that uh, who's quite good, well, Aberdeen are quite a good team, so let's just move Aberdeen. To Glasgow and rename them as uh, as Rangers, <laughs> basically. So and this was this this was very common. Uh, this this happened a lot. BFC Dynamo themselves started in, in 1953, and that, on that basis, they were uh, they were basically a Dynamo Dresden team, and they were relocated back to Berlin. And um, actually, it was one of these instances that the players were quite happy because all of the players were Berliners in the first place who had been moved out to Dresden to form right. a Dynamo Dresden team as well. So, And so I presume were, in, a, in a country like East Germany, the fans aren't really going to make much of a protest about that. 
Well, I think it became ingrained within the culture as, as, as such. Really, there, there was a hierarchy of of, of clubs, and uh, everybody knew it, and and it was tolerated to an extent. And I think it was tolerated to an extent when there was still a sense um, that other clubs could could have success. And and over the years, uh, I mean, before BSC Dynamo took over. Uh, absolute control of of these German game uh, starting from 1979. I mean, in the early 1970s, Magdeburg were and Jena were, were the the forces in in East German game, and um, both of those clubs reached European Cup winners' cup finals. So, while there was a sense that other clubs could at least compete, um, then that was seen to be it was tolerated. But yeah. um, I, I I think that compact was broken somewhat. Once they realised that um, it was BFC Dynamo and the rest, yeah. So you mentioned that your favourite club is Vorwärts Berlin. Why? Yes, why, yes. why? Why? Why choose that one, Craig? Well, I mean, there was not much glamour going on within East Germany at all in the nineteen sixties, but um, certainly in the footballing sense, Vorwärts represented that to an extent. I mean, they were they were a state club. I mean, that's that's not uh, hesitate to to, to to mention that and um, when you're a state club in, in any Eastern Bloc country that confers upon you many many advantages so when East German players uh, footballers had to do their military service for example they tended to be conscripted to play for Vorwärts Berlin and um, which gave them advantages of all the best young talent in the country who, um, who played for them and many of them once they came to the the end of the two years of military service actually enjoyed playing for the club uh, because it was a club that played progressive football uh, at a time when East German football was seen as technically not very advanced and very functional. And they played quite uh, quite good, quite uh, exotic, quite foreign football in many ways. So the, the club was actually quite popular with um, with other supporters because they, they, they were enjoyable to watch, really. So, um, so yeah, they, they kind of occupy um, the kind of role of East Germany's team of the 60s and uh, they were regulars in the European Cup and a fascinating history, uh, fascinating history behind them and, and how they came into being was fascinating. And then, of course, uh, as I've described before, how they, um, <laughs> how they went out of existence, at least in, under the name of Forfaits Berlin, they, 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 they continued to play on as Forfaits Frankfurt Order, but... Um, so Again, they don't they don't exist now, or are they amateur well, they, side? Or well, they, they they exist in some form. Um, I think the club is now called One FC Frankfurt, um, still based in the town. And um, there's been they've undergone so many mergers, so many name changes that the uh, any element of the original Forfaits uh, Berlin DNA within them is has barely yeah. barely, barely yeah. exists at all. A bit like how a Wimbledon fan feels about MK Dons. Uh, yes, probably <laughs> considerably more diluted than that. But, but yeah, yeah, that's that's quite quite a good analogy. But what, what was really quite, I mean, the, the stories around the, the kind of enforced moves were quite quite interesting as well, um, because the, the the greatest opposition when when it was decided that the club had to move, uh, to, I mean, you, you basically couldn't move as far away from Berlin in, in East Germany as as the Polish border, and. Um, the main source of resistance to this move was actually the players' wives, because the uh, 
when they, they moved to when they, they visited Frankfurt Oder for the first time, which was a, a small town of 30,000, 40,000 people perhaps. And um, it was there was absolutely nothing there. <laughs> it was uh, there was nondescript place. I, and uh, Craig, I don't think that influence has changed even now <laughs> with uh, where players I, decide to sign. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. But um, and again, it's, it seems odd to our ears, but um, the players' wives enjoyed being in East Berlin because East Berlin was was very cosmopolitan uh, <laughs> compared to well it was the, the shop window of the gdr really wasn't it facing the west there well absolutely and and being being footballers and being footballers worries meant that they had access to the, the supermarkets with with western with imported western goods right. as well so, oh, so okay. there, there were there were certain privileges and there was nothing of that ilk in them um, in in Frankfurt order so um, no. so yes it's a, they, they led the vanguard of resistance to the to the move <laughs> rather than the players themselves so. um you you mentioned about bfc dinamo and their uh, i think you uh, phrased it as their dominance of the uh, mm. german oberliga so I'd, obviously you mentioned the fact that they grabbed or milka and grabbed all the good players and moved them to uh, the side. Were there any other influences that sort of helped them uh, win the league or win games? Well, certainly. I mean, the, the history of, of BFC is, is, is a curious one because um, Milka's involvement with the club went right back to the formation, which was essentially in, in, in 1953. And... Um, what he wanted to do with with the club, um, they were originally founded as the Berlin Sports Club Dynamo, and it was an organisation for the employees of the Ministry for State Security and the People's Police, which is a, a mouthful, and in obviously in the East German capital, and essentially it was modelled on the Dynamo Moscow Club in in Russia, and that occupied exactly the, the, that same function, but uh, for the KGB, so. Again, it was replicating the kind of state functions from 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 Russia, as was common right the way across the Eastern Bloc. And a year later, 1954, he um, he transplanted um, the uh, Dynamo Dresden team to try to create a strong team uh, in a hurry. <laughs> there was no uh, no nods towards team building and the likes. Then it's just just import uh, a, another successful team. But there wasn't really much success for the club. In fact, were, I think in 1957 they were they were even relegated, and um, they were still called Dynamo Berlin at that stage. And it was in 1966, as, as I mentioned before, when a number of clubs broke away to become dedicated football clubs. That's when they became BFC Dynamo. And um, even at that stage in their history, they had um, they'd won one um, one cup but never never won the league and, and Forverts were, were the dominant club. But um, I think his policies tended to change in the 70s, really. And um, I think uh, there were a number of, of reasons for that. Uh, it rankled with him to an extent that many fans in East Berlin were fascinated by football in West Berlin. So many of them followed on their shortwave radios um, the fortunes of Hertha Berlin, for example. And... Um, that was a source of, of great irritation, and he wanted to build a super club, an East, uh, an East Berlin super club mm-hmm. that uh, could be seen to be an equal of the, the super the clubs that he was starting to see uh, springing up around Europe. Stoy Bucharest in Romania, CSK Sofia in, in Bulgaria. These were clubs who were gaining international traction, and when you have 
traction like that, then you have good publicity and good PR. So, yeah. so I think and, he wanted an equivalent in, in East Berlin. Right. Is there any evidence that he was sort of putting pressure on officials to, you know, fix games? Well, that certainly did come about. I mean, I think he was he was not a man to ever really leave leave things to chance. And um, the last championship um, before BFC started their their run of dominance, I think, was one in it was nineteen seventy eight, and would it have been won by Leipzig. I think it was won by Leipzig. And uh, infamously, he is um, said to have walked into the dressing room at the end of the game, where the um, the Leipzig players were celebrating and said to said to them, enjoy the celebration because this is the last title you'll ever win. <laughs> and, and, and it was the last title that they'd ever win. And, and there's, there's certainly clear evidence of um, referee corruption. And um, in a subtle way and in a, in a more overt way, the, the subtle way was tended to be because uh, obviously East German referees were called up to... Um, referee games abroad, uh, internationals, European club games, and that was considered to be a great honour and it was a great privilege because it was a rare opportunity for these officials to be able to travel outside East Germany. But of course, to get a visa for that, they had to go to the Stasi because the Stasi yeah. issued issued the visa. So, hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I think there was this kind of um, unspoken knowledge that um, if they made decisions that were displeasing to yeah. uh, BFC Dynamo that uh, they would mysteriously find out yeah. that they were being granted uh, you know, granted visas and, and the privilege of, of travelling abroad as well. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, there were, there was the most, one of the most famous um, incidents was, I think it was the 1985-86 season and um, it was um, BFC and uh, Leipzig were in close competition for the title near, near the end of the season and they played each other in Leipzig uh, and in what was essentially something of a, of a title uh, playoff. Leipzig were, were leading 1-0 and near the end of the game um, the referee sent off Locomotive's captain for no real apparent reason. I think he ran out of a, ran out of a defensive wall before a free kick could be taken and something quite simple anyway. And then with the final whistle looming, um, uh, BFC striker fell to the ground in the penalty box with, <laughs> with no Leipzig player anywhere anywhere near him. And the referee awarded the penalty. And um, uh, Dinamo scored, drew the game and ended up winning the, the, the title by two wow. points. Wow. But there was, such, there, was, there was such an outcry. I mean, it was a near riot yeah. on the ground that day. 
and I think there was an understanding then that um, <laughs> that, that there's, there was corruption and yeah. that had crossed the line for, for yeah. everybody. I, d- I don't suppose there's any film of that game. Is there on YouTube anywhere? There or? is. Actually, actually, yes. If if you go to YouTube, you can find footage, footage of the game. So right. Well, I will... I will add that to the show notes and uh, <laughs> and uh, provide the uh, the the link to that. That will certainly be worth um, worth watching. How did um, BFC Dynamo do in Europe? Did they do? Uh, obviously, they wouldn't be able to influence referees in that way. Um, no, well, yeah, I mean that was uh, it was it was, um, and again, it would have been. I'm sure it would have been a source of of great um, uh, annoyance to Milka because by by the 70s and 80s very much all of the 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 talented young East German players were, were finding tending to end up at at BSE. So I mean they had a, a strong team anyway, even without the obviously the corruption element in, in the domestic game. But they made very little um inroads at all um into, into European competition. I mean obviously they played in the European Cup uh ten years in succession and I think they maybe reached off the top of my head, I think the furthest they reached was the quarterfinals, and I think it might have been the season that Aston Villa won the uh, the European Cup in 1982, and I think BFC Dynamo they, they defeated them on the way. And in fact, BFC Dynamo won at Villa Park, which was which was a great result. So they won one nil, but uh, they had already lost the first day two nil at home, so <laughs> they still went out. Yeah, I think I saw um, they lost to Bayern Munich as well. In one, uh, yeah, yeah, there was one year which they, must they lost have really bike. rankled milk. <laughs> well, what was what was was quite annoying was um, that East German other East German clubs did make some inroads into European competition. Um, I mean, uh, Magdeburg most famously they won the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1974, and um, Karl Jaisiena reached the final in 1981, and they lost to uh, Dinamo Tbilisi. And uh, the the third and final um, European finalist was uh, Leipzig, uh, Lokomotiv Leipzig in uh, 1987, and they lost to Johan Cruyff's Ajax team again in Cup Winners' right. Cup final. So, but BFC Dynamo never reached, never even reached the final. So, oh, the I, the irony, the, the irony, indeed, indeed, <laughs> yes. Um, were were other clubs favoured by? senior GDR figures. I'm I'm sort of like envisaging, you know, Eric Honecker and Milka having a you know, a couple of beers and arguing the merits of their various teams. But um do you, do you <laughs> well, know of any uh, affiliations that the other leaders had to clubs? Well I, I, I don't think there's any great um knowledge of, of Honecker having interest in football at all, really. Um I mean, I think interesting. I, I think Milka was was an exception in, in many ways. I think um, most members, most of the senior members of the um, of the SED party, uh, of the really genuinely had very little interest in the, in the sport um, beyond what could be extracted for uh, for good publicity from it, and 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 hard foreign currency as well. When when there was European ties to be played, but um, certainly one of the the larger than life uh, political figures. Of, of the of East German history was was a, a fellow who went by the name of Harry Tisch and he, oh is he, he the was, trade union leader? Well, that was one of his roles. Yes, he became head of the Free German Trade Union Federation in the mid seventies, and he uh, he was in that role probably right right to the the end of 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 his of, of the, the time when the wall came down. Obviously, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, he was Rostock based and um, he was involved as, a, as a, a, an assistant at the time to an, another uh, politician called Carl uh, Mewis. And they were in, involved with the creation of what became Hansa Rostock, which in typically is general fashion was a relocation of, of another team called Empire Lauter and just uh, brought in wholesale and said, right, you're Hans so Rostock now. I'm running out of paper to make notes here now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that, that was in 1954. But he, he um, Tish went on to become uh, the SED district for secretary in, in, in the Rostock district. And uh, yeah, so he was very influential uh, with, with the Hansa club. Uh, he was notorious as a heavy drinker. And um, he gained some degree of infamy in, in the mid-1970s during a game, um, I guess could have been at Cully I think, and Hansa Rostock went two goals down within 20 minutes and he uh, drunkenly stormed into the dressing room and ordered his coach to, to make uh, substitutions that he demanded right there and then. His coach refused and uh, was sacked on the spot. Wow. And um, well, that kind of... That sounds the sort of thing that you see from Italian presidents, club presidents yeah. today, and, and that's yeah. very much the case. And although obviously there was huge, huge uh, interference in, in, in football, that type of interference on, on a match day setting and things was 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 almost unheard of. So, um, so yes, Tish was a, a larger than life figure, and um, he came to obviously a very, a very sticky end um, post Berlin Wall as well uh, when he. His uh, various uh, corrupt corruptions from his background caught up with him, um, and he, he he went to jail. He was the first uh, Politburo member to to be tried in unified uh, Germany for for corruption charges. Right, I I, I hadn't read on his uh, his final demise, but I'll have to uh, have a look into that as well. Now, I, d- I just want to move away from the the East German League for for a moment and talk about uh, the 1974 World Cup match. Um, GDR versus uh, West Germany, because I don't think we can uh, miss that out. And I found a great quote online that apparently the uh, the GDR billed this as the triumphal march of GDR sport and the certainty of victory in the class struggle with West German imperialism. Now, that's a soundbite and a half, isn't it, Craig? <laughs> well, I, I mean... Yeah, you can go to town on on, on that one, and and admittedly the the states uh, went to town on, on that victory. It was a, a a very unexpected one, and in the grander scheme of things, it was um, utterly irrelevant because um, obviously West Germany went <laughs> on and won the World Cup itself, kind of thing. But um, I, I think there was there was great stock played in that being the one major competitive game played between the nations. And so were they friendly? Germany had a. Were they friendly? It wasn't friendly. There, there was. Um, I did read an interesting article about this some years back. There, there were a series, There were several other games played. Um, I think Olympic qualifiers, less significant games, right? But uh, games and played behind closed doors and um, ones that don't seem to be recorded in the record book. <laughs> certainly, as far as the East German states yeah. concerned, but. Uh, they undoubtedly hang their, their hat on, on on that particular success, but but yes, I think um, the, the the coverage of the 1974 tournament was um, suddenly dwindled as the longer the tournament went on, and 
but by the time of the final, I think there was uh, very little of it was actually even yeah. being, being shown officially within East Germany. But of course, m- many many people could um, could pick up television signals from from the west as well. So that they were <laughs> they were hanging on, and yeah. there was there was uh, uh, the West Germany's victory was was greeted with popular acclaim amongst football supporters in the east. You know, they supported the west as well in in that sense, which. Uh, would not have gone down well with with the SCD at all. Yeah, and uh, so what the 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 goal scorer for the GDR was Jurgen uh, Sparwasser. What what happened to him? Did he? Well, he um, if, I, if I remember off the top of my head, Sparwasser was a, um, an an unusual one because there was obviously a long history of players who defected from from East Germany mm-hmm. and. Um, he didn't, um, as a player himself, kind of thing, because he 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 stayed loyal to the state for for whatever reason. And um, I mean, he 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 was a star midfielder who played for Magdeburg, um, starting from about the nineteen sixties, I think. So by nineteen seventy four, he was at the peak of his career. And he played on to um, uh, the late nineteen seventies, but. Um, he, yeah, I mean, he 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 had options and uh, he had opportunities to defect to the West, and um, there was talk that he had been rewarded for his goal because of the, the huge um, propaganda coup that it brought. Mm-hmm. But I think it was all a myth. I think people uh, suggested that he was given a house and he was given a car and, and given cash, and I don't think any of that actually happened at all. And then oddly, um, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think it would have been about 1988, uh, he was allowed to travel to West Germany to play in a veterans tournament because at that point he was, he was, um, I'm going to say he would have been about 40. So obviously his active career was, was, was long over. Mm-hmm. And at that stage he defected and uh, it was, it was quite <laughs> unusual because most of the defections tended to come from players who knew they would have the opportunity to earn good wages in the West. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, were there many player defections? I mean, I'm, I'm presuming this was when they were playing European matches away. Um, yeah, well, they take there, that opportunity. There, there were. I mean, the defections from um, many of the Eastern European states became a, a growing problem, and um, and even for East Germany, despite the, the strict, the you know, hugely strict control that was exerted over the players by. By the Stasi minders, then there, there was a, a history of, of defections. Yes, um, um, I mean one of the, the most fascinating stories I, I think was um, came in let me see 1976, and it was a East German under 21 team, and they were playing in Turkey. Um, and uh, so after the game, they were fl- they were flying back uh, the next day, and they had the morning free, and as a um, reward. They were the um, the officials decided that the players would be taken to one of the grand bazaars in Istanbul to do a little bit of shopping, and um, so they were wandering about, and um, a couple of the players and those players off the top of my head, um, Jürgen Pal, and uh, who probably isn't so well known, and uh, another player called Norbert Nathvai, who was a defender, and he became very known because he became a star defender with, with Bayern Munich in, in the, during the 1980s. But um, they had hatched a, a plan 
to to try to defect. So um, they, they had some shopping and they, they made an excuse uh, why they had to drop behind the party. They said they left the shopping in in, in a one of the bazaars. Mm-hmm. So they kind of won, they wandered off and then uh, ran off down alleys. And then the Stasi miners realised that they'd ran off, and a, a chase sequence ensued. And uh, the two players made their way to a taxi and headed over to the U.S. Embassy. And from the U.S. Embassy, they were passed on to the West German consulate. Mm-hmm. But then for the next for the next ten days, they were every night they were moved from different location to different location because the uh, combined spy agencies of the whole Eastern Bloc were out of force trying to find out where they were wow. to intercept them, to intercept them before they could be transported to. Uh, yeah. to, East, to, to West Germany, yeah. but uh, as, it, as it was, they reached the West and 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 they yeah. were they were granted asylum. So, yeah. um, yes, defections were were the closer we got to the fall of the Berlin Wall, then yeah, defections became a, a yeah. big, big issue. I would have thought they'd had the same problem with a with uh, match officials as well to some degree. Well, I think um, for match officials there was less motivation i mean match officials tended to be older um wow. there was there was not money to be made being a match official in the west so possibly if, if they had, obviously they had other other vacations as, as such but um most of the players who tended to defect and that's why Spavasa was unusual because at that point he was 40 and uh, he was married mm. but the players who defected tended to be young they tended to be uh, players who, who weren't married so they didn't necessarily have the strongest of familial connections back home because they knew that um, the families would be persecuted in yeah. their absence, really. Yeah. And when players are young, they're foolhardy and they're, they're brave and they're willing to take the risk that the, the older players and, and officials, for example, uh, in their 30s and 40s might not be brave enough yeah. to do. Yeah. Okay. That's, no, it's really, it's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't necessarily thought of it in, in that way. Mm. Um, what what happened to GDR football after the the wall came down? Presumably, they merged some of the teams into the Bundesliga, or were there playoffs, or or how did how did that work? I mean, that must have been quite a quandary for the uh, Bundesliga as to what they were going to do. Well, it, it it was. I mean, it it was a problem, and the the DFB, the the West, what was the obviously the West German Federation at the time. They, they 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 took a, a very long view towards this, a very um, positive view of what needed to be done to create unity. And I, I think it very much mirrored the general attitude of, of, of the West German states towards what needed to be done. And there was an, an understanding just how uh, moribund everything to do with East Germany was and, and how much money would have to be poured into reconstruction and how... Um, there would be a cost that people would have to suck up for for many years to to, to develop these like that, and it, so I think it was slightly comparable with with football um, because there was an understanding that uh, these clubs from the east would undergo I think what was going to be a very difficult transition because these are clubs who were state funded entities they'd never really had to cope on their own. Uh, everything was financed by whatever ministry or, or organ of government supported them. And uh, suddenly they were going to be beholden to the, the capricious nature of free market economics and, and find their own money and their own sponsorship. And 
who discover capitalism, basically. So uh, a fairly benign approach was taken. I think it was felt that um, to just consign all of the Oberliga clubs into the lower divisions of the Bundesliga would um, alienate supporters in the East. So uh, uh, the last season was the 1990-91 season. So based upon the final table that year, the top two teams, which were... uh, Hansa Rostock and Dynamo Dresden, they were given direct entry into the, the, the Bundesliga the following season. Uh, the next six clubs in, in the Oberliga table, they went into the, the second Bundesliga. So at that point, it was regional, north and south. So they were divided up between, between them. And the rest of the division were put into the third tier of, of the Bundesliga. So again, that was uh, divided into three regional groups. So it was a very positive I mean, I, 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 and pure footballing merits those clubs wouldn't have necessarily deserved to enter in at that level. Um, but I think it was a very, um, a very clever approach to, to about trying to get the East German game on side and try to help it develop and, and catch up that the DFB mm-hmm. took. Not, not so, that necessarily it helped in the long yeah. run, but... Uh, yeah. Somewhat ironic, again, that a Stasi club, Dynamo Dresden... Um, with the fall of the wall, gets promoted into the uh, top tier of the Bundesliga. Yes, well, I mean, Dino Jason always tend, were were seen as basically the you know, the second club, if if you like. They they were historically <laughs> almost like a feeder club to BFC Dynamo. But yeah, I mean, at least there is at least there's some irony that um, Dynamo Jason have. I think they're playing second in the second Bundesliga at the moment, and they have enjoyed a much much more <laughs> successful post-Berlin Wall existence than, than, than BFC has, for example. So yeah, so there's some irony in that, at least. Yeah, because I, I was going to, because obviously you mentioned that Vorwärts Berlin or Vorwärts Frankfurt or whatever they are called now um, have, you know, been di- so diluted they almost, well, they, they mm. aren't the same club anymore. How many of these GDR clubs still exist? I mean, obviously you've mentioned Dynamo Dresden and it sounds like uh, BFC Dynamo still exists in some form are there any others that are still there yes um i mean i suppose you could if you look at that final oberliga table you could break down the clubs into the ones who exist and continue to exist and play under the same names the ones that continue to exist but play under different names and um clubs who who, who we have lost so you have dresden as i mentioned hansa rostock is still there Rottweiss, Erfurt, Kaujaus Jena, Magdeburg, um, Energy Cottbus as well. In fact, Energy Cottbus were the most recent East, uh, Eastern team to play in the Bundesliga. I think in roughly 2009 would have been the last time. Leaving aside uh, RB Leipzig, of course, which is a, a totally different different entity. Is that a manufactured um, side, that? or Well, well it is, or is, yes. It? I mean, they're, yeah. they're Leipzig-based, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yes, they're, they're a club that only really came into existence um, in, in the last uh, six or seven years or so, really. And right. um, they were based upon a, a minor club called uh, Markenstadt, if, if I recall. And um, and, and yes, so, so they're, they're a manufacturer company. They, they didn't obviously uh, exist in, in all yeah. the league of times, really. Yeah. So, um, are there so no, there, are there no former GDR clubs in the top tier anymore? Or currently, not at the moment. I mean, right. um, you, you had Hans have been in a few, several times. They, they, they've, they've had a few runs. Dynamo Dresden were in for the first four years. Mm. They stayed in for four seasons when they they, they were first put in 
August uh, 1991. Um, yeah, Leipzig, what, what was Lokomotiv Leipzig? They changed their name to BF, uh, BFB Leipzig uh, or VFL Leipzig, which was the former, pre, it was the pre-war Leipzig. Right. Um, so long before communism, which had been greatly successful. Hmm. But then they realized that um, most of their brand value existed with with uh, as locomotive so yeah. they went they went bankrupt in 2004 but reformed as locomotive and they continued to, to play as uh, as as locomotive um right. and as i see yeah, energy Cotmus who had a couple of runs in, in in the past decade but you've had some others that name changes what was um kenny haller uh is now known as hallish fc Obviously, Karl Marx stats the the town itself changed its name to uh, yeah back, back to Chemnitz. <laughs> that's that's right. So yeah. the, the the football club became Chemnitz FC. Um, so yeah, and and, and there's the clubs we've lost as well. Still, still Brandenburg went bankrupt in 1998, I think. Um, Stahl Eisenhüttenstadt went bankrupt in 2004, and yeah. they finally went to became defunct a couple of years ago. Uh, Saxon Leipzig, which is another uh, Leipzig, was the cradle of German football after all. But Saxon Leipzig was a, another club that um, they folded in yeah. 2011, and there's there's reformed clubs that are all in an unseemly scramble to try to appropriate their name now as well. So it's, yes, it's it's all very it's all very messy. Yeah, well, I, I was reading that BFC uh, Dynamo have got a bit of a struggle over their uh, club crest because somebody bought it. They they allowed it to go out of copyright or something, and somebody uh, bought it, and they've had a bit of a struggle over getting that back. Yeah, well, it's um, they've they, uh, been consumed by the, the kind of uh, capitalism, uh, which they've, yeah. just they've, met, they've uh, been struggled to, to adapt to. It's, it's been a, a, a common problem. It's, it's been a problem we've seen in Bucharest with with the major army club story as well. Mm. That, that's had similar problems in in recent years, but. Um, I think people now that the, the um, what they tend to associate BFC Dynamo with yeah. exclusively is is the hooligan far right supporters, unfortunately. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a club that maintains a bad reputation, albeit for very different reasons now than than in the past. Well, Craig, that that's been really uh, interesting. Um, I did have some other questions for you. I was interested to know if you if you had any GDR or Cold War items you've collected down the years? Uh, a few bits and pieces. I mean, I, I have a uh, for a Berlin pin badge, which my girlfriend kindly bought me as a birthday present a few years ago, so I'm, I'm very attached to, to that. Um, apart from that, I have bits and pieces of kind of modern replicas, uh, I, I suppose. Uh, so I have a uh, replica of that, um, the beautiful Karl Marx stat, 1976-77 strip and you if you haven't seen it it's a strip you need to look up because I will we will it. we will look I, that yeah. up that sounds very enticing could you well just try and describe it oh well I, I will contend it's probably the most beautiful strip any football team has ever worn in the wow. history of, of football so I'm probably overselling it a little bit but yes it's um it's 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 a very iconic kit and you you can purchase it in replica form it's um Essentially, it's pale, pale blue and white, and it's um, halves. If you can imagine a strip in half, but it's, a, it's diagonal half. So it's, yeah. Uh, um, but you you have to look it up. I, I don't think. Okay. My, my, no, my, we'll, my words can. 
we'll, we'll put a link on the show notes to that. That's, uh, that, that sounds re- really enticing. So is, is that your most prized item? I, it must be the badge your girlfriend got for you. Oh, it's, it's definitely, I'm, I'm definitely going to go with it, go with the badge. But, uh, but yes, very so, sensible, but, yeah. very sensible. <laughs> <laughs> is is there anything else you're you're still hoping to collect you know like a four varts berlin away shirt or uh... well I, I such a thing doesn't exist unfortunately so <laughs> i i would um be i i have seen on ebay some original kind of tracksuit type tops so like chaining tops and, and the likes on on german ebay before but um the price is <laughs> yeah horribly, horribly prohibitive because yeah um or the very old items now, of course, really. But um, I mean, I think what just yet another aspect of um, Eastern European and, and, and specifically East, East German uh, football that I adore is is uh, the iconography and um, the graphic design that went into the club badges. And um, I, I, I love all of that stuff. And um, so there was... There, there were quite there, there was a lot of uh, merchandise created a lot of uh, items and none of it sort of tacky todgy type of stuff that we we tend to associate with um with western european clubs so there's some beautiful bits and pieces particularly in terms of badges and, and pens yeah. and the likes and um of course it's 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 like piecing together a jigsaw because you you'll you'll find this club name that you go i've never even heard of that club before and then you'll find out that it's actually a club that you know very well, but it was this particular iteration was something that it was called for six months in 1964. And then they decided <laughs> to change the name again. Wow. Uh, as most of these German clubs went through you know, multiple name changes and mergers yeah. and, and, and the likes really. So, so trying to piece together the history is, is, is incredibly complex, but also uh, unduly rewarding as well, I think. Yeah. Well, as as I said at the, 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 at the start of the podcast, your um, website beyondthelastman.com, dot com has some uh, great stories about some of the individual um, East German clubs. There's one called uh, Robotron, which I think was the East German computer manufacturer. Well, well, that's uh, Robotron Samada. Yes, that was yeah. the, a guest post. Um, I, I had the, t- again tended to attract a lot of guest posts from um people who are interested in, in eastern eastern europe and there was a a, a fellow a, a colleague called rick joshua who who runs a bundesliga site and he's a, a big expert on um german football generally and yeah so he, this is a, a piece about the unusually named uh, robotron and uh, robotron samerda um who were an obscure club with an obscure history um but a wonderful name and a wonderful badge A question I was going to ask you is, I think we've probably talked about quite a lot about what people might not been, might not have been aware of um, about the GDR, but is there there Mm. anything else that you've sort of found in your research that you thought, wow, I never really knew about that. That's really unusual. Well, I mean, moving away from football a little bit with with, with this, this one, I mean, as the old saying, the old adage goes that uh, even a stopped clock is is right twice a day. And um, I think one aspect of um, East German, East German state, East German culture that I found quite interesting uh, was that it was fairly progressive with the promotion of of the rights of women, gender equality uh, generally. I mean, I think it was 
almost pragmatic. I think there was an understanding that uh, a realization realization that when over half of your population are women, that it made sense to the a resource there to be mined. So I think the consequence, obviously, women proved to be a feature of the workplace at a level that was unheard of at the time in, in the West. And in terms of the kind of social support that went on in kindergartens and maternity benefits and uh, access to abortion uh, that, that women had at a time when even today um, with many women don't have those those kind of rights and and again there was promote, uh, promotion of, of children uh, many youth organizations to, um, to to embolden children and get them organized and again there was this was to, to political ends but um, there was still a, a benefit to be had from it yeah. Of course, the, the gender equality only only runs so far, and um, I mean it was driven by economic imperative more than any other reason, and and it was almost unheard of, of course, to see women uh, in the workplace in management positions, for example, and you would never ever see mm. any women in the upper reaches of the uh, the ruling SED party, unless you're Eric Honecker's wife, of course. But there you go. Well, well, then you hosted dinner <laughs> parties and and you went and hunting. Chips. Well, I think she was <laughs> Minister of Education, wasn't she? Ah, well, I, I, I suppose uh, Margot. I think it she was, was anyway. I, th- I think she you did have some sort of per- position there. I mean, it's interesting you, you're talking about that. I mean, were there any women's football teams? Well, it's a good question. Um, not that I'm aware of, um, but I, I couldn't state definitively one way or another, to be honest. But um, I, I can't say I necessarily have, have ever encountered them, now. Sounds like a new area for research, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to I'll leave that for somebody else's site. Okay. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Another another guest writer can, uh, yeah, can cover that. Okay. <laughs> um, now I did have a, a a few other questions which are sort of like uh, semi uh, fun ones. And if, sure. So, um, if you were a filmmaker, um, what Cold War incident or event would you recreate on film, and why? Well, it would be a toss-up between between two. Uh, I think one that we talked about, which was the um, the Jurgen Pal and Norbert Nachtvai, uh running down the dark alleyways of Istanbul Bazaar. Oh, it'd be a great chase scene, wouldn't it? Well, it, I mean, it sounds like it, there's a born there's a born film waiting to be written around that around that. In fact, one of the dunes, one of the Bond films was set in Istanbul, wasn't it? Um, it had the opening chase sequence in, in Istanbul. Yeah. I can't remember which one, but um, so so I mean that's is, is a fascinating story in itself. Uh, and the other one, considerably more sinister, was the the life and death of um, Lutz Eigendorf, who, if if your listeners aren't aware, he was a defender, a central defender, who played for BFC Dynamo, and he was uh, reportedly one of Eric Milka's favourite players. And he defected to the West, which caused uh, Milka great fury. And um, so he was being followed by day and night by, by Stasi agents, as, as happened to any player who defected to the West. And Eigendorf was, unlike most of the, the defectors, he was a player who didn't keep his mouth shut. He spoke out about what went on in the East and about the abuses and about how corrupt the system was. And I think that obviously angered the powers that, that be, the powers that were, uh, mm-hmm. even more so. And so he was playing with uh, Einstein Brunswick, and uh, I think this would have been 1983, and he died in a, in a car accident. 
um, when his Alfa Romeo went off the road and, and crashed into a tree. And um, it was officially, it was deemed to be an accident, but, um, and there's, there's never been a definitive smoking gun one way or another, but there's a huge amount of anecdotal evidence to suggest that uh, it was a death that was um, staged, if that's not too strong right. a word, by, by the Stasi, yeah. using, using a, 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 by, by jugging his drink. And right. then knowing he'd be driving home, and then by by using this headlight flashing technique they had to to blind uh, drivers on the road and encouraging to it's again it's, it's there's a lot of confusion behind now it, that's but. That, that's interesting you mentioned that story because I've recently read a story about a similar incident where the Stasi drugged a U.S. military liaison team that mm. were in East Germany. Um, and they invited they invited them to some party, or they offered them some drinks. And the drink the the dosage in the drink was set to uh, cause them a to have an accident, and then they mm. would have been arrested for drunk driving. And you know they wanted to make a big a big deal out of it. So very similar sort of yes uh, yeah. modus operandi, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. Well, I mean, post unification uh, when the Stasi fires were, were revealed and the extent of Milka's operations against Eigendorf became public knowledge and they included details of possible ways of, of killing, the, killing the players and uh, of, of, of how best to, to kill them. And um, again, anecdotal stuff, but there was documentation showing that supervising officer in the case received a large cash award in the night of his death and, um, Right, I, you know, and, and again, there was testimony from from uh, the, the people he had been drinking with that he had had one small beer that night, and yet the yeah. amount of alcohol found in his system. So, I, I, again, it's a, a fascinating story, yeah. albeit a very very tragic one. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. I'll try and find some detail on that and add some links <laughs> to the uh, show notes on that. Of course. Um, so. Uh, if you're making a film about the Cold War, what, how about a soundtrack? Have you got any music that you think would be a, a good soundtrack? Yeah. Well, for whatever reason, I mentally picture, whenever I mentally picture the Cold War, I always put it in a 1970s setting. I, I don't know why that's the case. So <laughs> when I view anything through a, a 1970s prison, whether it's um, growing up in in grey, rainy Glasgow or anything east east of Berlin in, in that era. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, cold, I think grey, I think austere and I think concrete. Actually, <laughs> very concrete. Yeah. So uh, I suppose musically the, the, the pieces I would look towards for, for such a project would, would be would be musical pieces that tend to invoke that kind of atmosphere really. So I, I suppose I'm thinking things like um, Joy Division's Insights, um, Underpass, maybe by John Fox, um, The American by Simple Minds, uh, Mr. X by Ultravox, you know, all, all yeah. songs that kind of capture that kind of chilliness, if, if you like, yeah. of, of the year, or at least my perception of, of that year. Yeah, no, brilliant. <laughs> I like those. I like those. We're, we'll have some links up for those. People <laughs> can uh, can uh, hit, hear those as well. Um, are there are there any books uh, in English that you could particularly recommend for anybody interested in GDR football? I'm laughing here because I'm thinking there's probably not many books in English about GDR football. 
Well, you know, there is one definitive one. Brilliant. Uh, and it's a, it's a book that's uh, written by um, an author called Alan McDougall. And um, the name of the book is The People's Game, Football, State and Society in East Germany. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll happily email you that link if, <laughs> yeah. if, if you get after as well. Now, this book came out um, a number of years ago, uh, and it came out in, in hardback form. I'll be looking at that. That sounds like one for the Christmas list, Craig. Oh, it's, it's a great read, yeah. Yeah, great. Okay. And, and so what, I, I was going to say, what's your most prized uh, book? And, and this doesn't necessarily need to be about GDR football. I mm. mean, have you got a particularly prized book? Um, I mean, I think, I, I think if I adapted that to become what would be my Desert Island book, I suppose I, I would say... Well, in footballing terms, it would be um, David Goldblatt's "The, the Ball Is Round," and it's essentially it's a, a one thousand page or so historical opus that covers absolutely everything to do with the history of football. Uh, but there, there, I mean, there are some GDR um, books that I, I am very fond of as well. Um, there's uh, John O'Kohler wrote a, I mean, he's written a number of books, but. Um, one of his that I wrote that I really like is um, it's a history of the Stasi. Yep, and I've got that one. Ah, yes. Yeah, yep. The untold history of the East German secret police. I think it goes under the uh, the title. Um, and also Frederick Taylor's history of the Berlin Wall. Um, and it's called the the Berlin Wall, thirteenth of August, nineteen sixty one to tenth of November, nineteen eighty nine. And yeah, that's certainly as good a history of of the Berlin Wall as I think I've ever read. Great. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll put up some links to those. And lastly, um, is there a film or TV series that you've seen that you think is a good factual or fictional representation of life in the GDR? I'm very fond of The Lice of Others, which um, came out of 10 years ago, 2007, yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, to, again, to any of your listeners who, who haven't seen it, I'm sure most of, most of them will. It's... Um, it's it's a Stasi Stasi based story about um, a bohemian couple. Um, he's a dramatist and his wife's uh, an actress, and they fall under the attentions of, of the Stasi. And and this one of the senior uh, officers is assigned to uh, a surveillance case against them, and and he slowly starts to become submerged in in the the life that they lead. And it's an absolutely fascinating fascinating story. Um, and also, I think another probably slightly lighter book, uh, sorry, uh, film from I think this one's from about 2003, Goodbye Lenin. Yes, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely great fun. It's, it's such yeah. a, a wonderful, wonderful premise for a film. Um, no, I'd, I'd agree with you with that with that one. Yeah. And, and Life of Others is a is an amazing film, and particularly the, the ending I think is really powerful as very well. Poignant, yeah, very yeah. poignant indeed, yeah. really. So, um, so, so, so yes, yeah. yeah. Both, both of those, yeah, I, I would affirm that recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Craig, if people want to find you online or communicate with you further, uh, where, where's the best place to find you? Well, my website, as you mentioned, is uh, beyondthelastman.com. That's all one word. Um, so that's where, where most, of, uh, most of my writing exists as well. But um, I'm fairly active on, on Twitter uh, at beyondtlm. And um, just just as a, a little side product, a side project, um, I also run a uh, Forverts Berlin Twitter account, uh, which, which is, is that, where I found you. <laughs> which is where you found me. And again, it's a, a kind of um, 
a, a little indulgence project really, but uh, it was just to try and, and keep the name of um, a former great, great, but now defunct club alive and uh, just gathering up um, bits of uh, memorabilia and nostalgia match tickets and pictures of, of the, the, the club in action and images of the players and, and the likes really. So um, yes, you, you, you can find me there as well. Okay, Craig, it's been, it's been a joy. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Okay, okay. have a good time. Have a good All day. Right. Cheers. Thanks. Now. See you. Bye. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Craig. If you'd like to view some of the videos we discussed, there's links in the show notes at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number three. That's coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number three. Don't forget, you can join our discussion group on Facebook. Just search Cold War Conversations. And we're also on Twitter at, at Cold War Pod. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews with your podcast provider. See you soon. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.